if you were to survey the last uh, 2,000 years of church history, there would be at least five theologians, five Christian thinkers that would immediately come to the surface. These are formidable men. These are godly men. These are men on whom we, we, we find comfort and rest and we rely on their biblical scholarship. They have helped us a great deal. And the men that I'm referring to are, number one, Jonathan Edwards. Number two, John Calvin, the Genevan reformer. Number three, the German reformer, Martin Luther. Number four would be the British pastor and theologian, John Owen. And the fifth and probably the most influential thinker that I can think of would be St. Augustine. St. Augustine, born in 354. Now, as you think about Edwards and Luther and Calvin and Owen and Augustine, you need to remember that these men did not agree on every single piece of theological minutiae. They agreed on much, but there are some things that they disagreed on. And so what has struck me over the years is that when you can find something significant that men of this theological caliber, if they agree on something uniformly, then we should most likely listen. Wouldn't you agree? We should listen very carefully. Well, there's an issue that St. Augustine speaks of, and this is an issue that each of the five theologians that I have just referred to agree on in whole. And this is what Augustine says. He says, this I know, that no one has been able without falling into error to argue against predestination, which we defend according to the Holy Scriptures. As a church family, once again, we stand on the shoulders of men like Augustine who wrestled with the weighty and significant doctrine of predestination. You might be interested to know that our own statement at Christ Fellowship that concerns the doctrine of salvation, which includes the doctrine of predestination, reads in part, and I quote, Salvation is based upon the sovereign, free election of God before the foundation of the world, apart from foreseen faith. God elects according to the purpose of his will, thus manifesting the glorious display of his goodness and grace. Election utterly excludes boasting and promotes humility, love, purity, prayer, praise, assurance, evangelism, and global missions to unreached peoples. Regeneration is the sole work of the Holy Spirit that brings God's elect to repentance and faith. The title of the message this morning is simply The Point of Predestination. And in this message, I want to take some extended time to explore with you the inner workings of predestination. And we will answer questions like What is predestination? What is the purpose of predestination? Why? Predestination. I know that's the one question that is burning in many hearts. And we will ask, what is the ultimate end or what is the ultimate aim of predestination? But there's one final question that I want to 
to wrestle with before we begin our study. And that is, I'm sure that some of you have wondered, if you've been here over the course of the last three, three weeks, you're asking, Pastor, what gives with predestination? Why do you continue to emphasize this doctrine? And the answer is a very simple answer. And the answer is that because we find predestination and the doctrine of election in the passage before us. One of the great benefits of expository preaching is that a pastor is forced to wrestle with the theological issues that he faces in a given text. In other words, as you preach expository messages, as you study the word of God verse by verse, when you run into something that is uncomfortable, guess what you do? You skip right over it. That's not the answer. And so when you run across a subject that is controversial or causes uh, even uh, pain or anguish or wrestling, when one preaches expository messages, we are forced to wrestle with every piece of theology. And what I've learned over the years is when we wrestle with theology, guess what happens? We grow. We grow. We go deeper into grace and we are conformed evermore into the image of the Lord Jesus Christ, which is the promise of sacred scripture. I want to invite you this morning to turn with me once again to the book of Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 1, and we left off last week at the end of verse 4. And that's why if some of you are wondering, what in the world is 4B? Well, 4B would basically be the very last few words, two in particular, at the end of verse 4. Will you stand with me for the reading of God's word? Ephesians chapter 1, beginning at the end of verse 4. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. Father, I ask that you would fill this room right now with a, a strong sense of understanding. I pray that you would uh, fill this group with a desire to know you more, to draw nearer to your son, the Lord Jesus Christ, and to appropriate the saving benefits that belong to anyone who is in Christ. O Holy Spirit, I pray that you would come and that you would serve as our teacher, that you would be the paraclete, as John 14 uh, so vividly describes that ministry of the Holy Spirit, that you would encourage us with this great truth that is before us, that you would comfort us with this truth. God, if there's anyone here who is, is wrestling, and I've had many conversations over the last few weeks with people who are wondering or wrestling or even have more questions about this very important doctrine, would you clear those questions up this morning as we study your word? Would you bring peace to struggling souls? And may today be a day when we can draw the line in the sand and say, Lord, I think I'm beginning to understand. I think I'm to the point where I can accept what the scripture says, and I am encouraged. And so, God, I pray that you would be merciful uh, to your people today, that you would fill each person with a, a sense of wonder 
as we open your word and seek to learn from your word, as we see and savor the Lord Jesus Christ and all that he has accomplished on behalf of his people, all to the glory of the Father. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Before we begin to dig into the inner workings of predestination this morning, we need to to do something that I actually find a great deal of enjoyment in, and that is we need to align our theological bearings. That is, we begin by noting that predestination is a biblical term, and I think that's an important place to begin. It's a biblical term. Indeed, predestination is a biblical reality. And here's what I've discovered over the years. We can deny predestination. We can ridicule predestination. We can ignore predestination. We can even critique predestination. We can throw darts at predestination. But at the end of the day, we must concede this. Predestination is biblical reality. It is a biblical term. I want to have you, just by way of introduction, look at just a few passages with me. And I want to encourage you to turn to those passages and just to to have you gaze upon four or five passages that show the biblical reality of predestination. So hold your finger in Ephesians 1 and turn with me a few books back to the book of Acts. Acts chapter 4, beginning in verse 27. Acts 4, 27. And the context here is about the the death of our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And here we read in verse 27, For truly in the city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, to do whatever your hand, and that is speaking of God, whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. Now turn with me to the book of Romans. And this is a a section of scripture that that Jason read just a few moments ago for us. Romans chapter 8, verses 29 and 30. And we will need to, some of you say, who are we? I will need to discipline myself to not... Uh, speak at length about this passage because this is a, a, a wonderful, wonderful passage. Romans eight twenty nine, For those whom he foreknew, that is, for those whom God the Father foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and those whom he predestined, he also called and those whom he called, he also justified and those whom he justified, he also glorified. If you would turn back to the book of Ephesians, hopefully your finger is there and you will notice verse five, which is a passage that we will wrestle with in great detail here in a moment says he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. And now move forward. We won't have time to look at this today. It'll be several weeks before we get there. But in verse 11, in him, we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. 
And so as we, we get our theological bearings aligned, we begin with this very important truth that the notion of predestination comes right from the pages of Scripture. This is not an invention of the Reformers. This is not an invention of the Puritans. It's not an invention of any of the other theologians. It is a a biblical term. I want to take a minute to define the term. When we define predestination, we quickly discover that the word is comprised of two Greek words. The two Greek words, the first one you're actually familiar with, it's the word pro. It's the prefix pro, and pro is defined as before, before. And then the next word that, that makes up the, 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 the biblical reality of predestination is the Greek word horizo, horizo. And it's defined as to determine or to appoint or to decree or to ordain. And so when you put pro and horizo together, guess what you get? You get prohorizo. And prohorizo simply means to predetermine, to decide beforehand, or to appoint beforehand. That's exactly what the word means. A theological explanation of predestination would be set forth as follows. One theologian from the 16th century says, Predestination we call the eternal decree of God, by which he is determined in himself what he would have to become of every individual of mankind. And that sounds strangely similar to what we learned last week, that God ordains everything that comes to pass. You might say it as follows. God ordains everyone. God either chooses a person for heaven or he passes over that person and that person endures eternal misery After they die. Many of you are familiar with John Knox. And and when Doreen and I were in Scotland, we had the opportunity to spend a great deal of time in St. Giles Cathedral, where Knox preached the mighty word of God faithfully for several years. We had also the opportunity to walk down uh, the Royal Mile Street, where you could walk down and eventually end up at Knox's house. And we took the, the short tour, and it was very short, was it not, Jerrine? Through his, it's like, we paid for that? It was wonderful. And in my mind, I, I was thinking what it, what it was like for John Knox to rise in the morning and to have his breakfast and to read the Word of God. And he could see, and Tom Junkmas and Laura have been there, and they know exactly what I'm talking about. They, he could see up the Royal Mile. He could see this massive cathedral, St. Giles Cathedral. And I would imagine, as you can only imagine, what it would be like for him to, to get his satchel and to put on his hat And to put on his coat and his scarf, because everyone wears a scarf in Scotland, especially in the winter. And to make that stroll to St. Giles Cathedral. Here's what John Knox says about predestination. He says, the doctrine of God's eternal predestination is so necessary to the church of God that without the same can faith neither be truly taught nor surely established. Man can never be brought to true humility And knowledge of himself, neither yet can he be ravished in admiration of God's eternal goodness and so moved to praise him. 
And what Knox is saying is the doctrine of predestination is, is a precursor to praise. And we're going to see that today, that when we learn that God has predestined his people, it causes us not to complain, but to cry out in great praise and adoration because he has chosen us before the foundation of the earth and the foundation of the cosmos. As we begin our journey into the inner workings of the doctrine of predestination, I want to draw your attention this morning to four headings that my prayer is will enable you to not only see the doctrine of predestination, but you will savor it as well. The first heading is found in verse 4, and, and we will not look at this in great detail, but we do spend a moment of review from last week. And the first heading is this, the divine plan. The divine plan. Verse 4 says, even as he chose us in him, that is, the Father chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. You ask the question, when did it happen? When were we predestined? And this verse, verse tells us clearly that predestination took place when? In eternity past. Each one of God's elect were predestined before the foundation of the world. That's where we begin. Then we move forward and, and look together at four aspects of God's plan. There are four aspects of God's plan. The first of which is that God's plan is eternal. When we think about the plan of God, we need to remember that God's plan is eternal. Psalm 33 verse 11 says, The counsel of the Lord stands forever. The plans of his heart to all generations. Isaiah 46, 9 and 10 says, Remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning, from ancient times, things not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose. How many of you remember those, those books and most most Young people, and actually many adults, will remember these books. And I, I used to love these books as a kid, where you read the first page and you get to determine what the story is. What, what's the name of those books? Choose Your Own Adventure. Yes. And so the way it would work, if you haven't had a chance to, to read one of these books, is you would read the first page, and then you would choose either option A or option B. And so for this example, let's say you, you chose option A, which would lead you into the cave structure. And then you go through the cave structure and you get to fight the lizards and the snakes. It's horrible. Right? And you get to a certain point in the page and it says now you get to choose between option A and option B. And you choose, in this case, option B. And option B leads you to a, a grassy meadow where you get a chance to relax and not fight the snakes and the, the dragons anymore. But the interesting thing about these books is I could choose option A on page one and option B on page two. And one of you could do the exact opposite. And the, the, the amazing thing about these books is everyone has the same book, but everyone ends up in a different place. And that's exactly the way some people conceive of God's universe. That's the way people, even Christ followers, conceive of God is God is a God of, of multiple possibilities. 
You can, there's a whole host of, of women that men could marry. There's a whole host of schools that you could attend. There's different places you could live. And it's true. There are different women that the men can marry. And there are different locations you could end up. And there are different schools that you could attend. But here's the reality. God has ordained every single one of those events. Why? God's plan is eternal. And so what the Choose Your Adventure books taught me was this. Number one, it was a great piece of fun for me as a child. But what they did is they taught me some very shoddy theology. Because God, God's future is not open. God's future is not, uh, 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 it is not up to my free will exclusively what I do. Now, I do make free choices, you see. But God also has ordained those choices. And this is what theologians refer to as the doctrine of compatibilism. Where God ordains everything that comes to pass. And human creatures who have free will somehow come together. Where I make a free choice and God has ordained whatever I will do. And God always gets his way, you see. God's plan is eternal. 2 Timothy 1.9 says that God saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he, ca- which he gave us in Christ Jesus when? Before the ages began. When did you get grace? When did I get grace? I became a Christian on July 4th, 1974. And some would say, well, that's the day you got grace. The word of God tells me that I received grace before the foundation of the worlds. That's when I received grace, when God chose me. Second Thessalonians 2.13 says, We ought to always give thanks to God for you, brothers, beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the first fruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. And so we realize that God's plan is eternal. God's plan is not open. Secondly, God's plans are set in concrete. This is just another way of reiterating the first point. His plans, you see, are totally unchangeable. The Lord of hosts has sworn, Isaiah 14 says, As I have planned, so shall it be. And as I have purposed, so shall it stand. I don't know what you think about when you hear those words, but that brings me comfort. It brings me encouragement to know that what God has settled in eternity can't change. That means I can't mess it up. That means you can't mess it up. That God will use our choices. Some of those choices are good choices. Some of those are bad choices. And some might even be in between choices. And he'll use all of those choices and he'll work all things together for good. Numbers twenty three nineteen says, God is not a man that he should lie or the son of man that he should change his mind. Has he said and will he not do it or has he spoken and will he not fulfill it? Isn't that a great rhetorical question? Will he fulfill it? The answer is yes, most certainly yes. Number three, and this one, if, if you carry a few aspirin, in your purse or your wallet or your pocket might be a great time to just pop a couple aspirin for fun. (laughs) God's plan includes random events. What some people consider to be lucky 
events? Oh, I don't like that word at all. Because why? There is no luck in God's economy. There's no luck in God's universe. But God's plan includes random events, what some would consider to be lucky events or chance happenings. Proverbs 16.33 says, The lot is cast into the lap, but every decision is from the Lord. Four, God's plan includes the sinful acts of people. Did you hear that? God's plan includes the sinful acts of people. We already read Acts chapter 4, verses 27 and 28, that says that along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. You remember that amazing story in Genesis chapter 50, where Joseph goes through this, uh, an amazing set of circumstances where he ascends to be one of the top leaders in the land, where he's accused of, uh, of rape, and he's a man of God. He's a man who loves the Lord. You remember that he was, he was uh, basically left to die by his brothers. You remember they threw him in the pit, and they thought the wild animals were going to eat him. But he ends up, as I said, being one of the number one guys in the land. He is, he is at the top of the totem pole, as it were. And at the end of the story in Genesis chapter 50, he faces his brothers. Can you imagine leaving your brother to die? And then down the road, you see your brother again, and he has become one of the top dogs. If that were me and I saw Joseph, I would think, I'm dead. I'm, I'm toast. And what does Joseph say? He says to his brothers, as for you, you meant it. Against me, but God meant it for good. You meant it for evil, brothers, but God meant it for good so that many people should be kept alive as they are today. One writer says that history in all its details, even the most minute, is but the unfolding of the eternal purposes of God. My friends, God has a divine plan. Therefore, fear not. God has a divine plan. And so when you think about North Korea, fear not. Why? God has a divine plan. Young people, who will I marry? Where will I go to school? Where will I end up? What will I do for a job? Will I have a job? Guess what? Fear not. God has a plan, and that plan is eternal. There's a second heading I want you to see. We move from the biblical reality of the divine plan to the divine pursuit. And I want you to look with me at the end of verse 4, and this is where that that little word be comes into play. At the end of verse 4, we see these words, in love, in love. And we ask this question, why? And this will be the question that some of you are asking, and you will hear people ask about the doctrine of predestination. Why did God predestine some people why did he predestine some people or if you're a christian you would ask this question why did he predestine me and i I should say as a footnote that when people wrestle with these questions if you're wrestling with the question in more of an aggressive way the question you may be asking is this why didn't god choose you fill in the blank But the question you should be asking is, 
why did he choose me? Why would he choose me, a sinner, lost and dead in sin, hopeless and without help and without God? Why would he choose me? I need to add that when we ask this question, why did God predestine us, that we need to do away with the notion that God chooses in a capricious fashion. What do I mean by that? That God chooses randomly. You, you, forget you, you, you. That's not the way God chooses. And here's the reason we know. Look at verse 4. In love he predestined us. Why did we, why were we predestined by God? We were predestined for this reason. Think about this. And, and, and may it wash over your heart and your mind. And may you leave today with this truth settled in your soul. That he predestined you because he loves you. Can you imagine? He predestined you because he loves you. Many of you are familiar with this word love. It's the word, the, the Greek word that, that is, is known by many. It's the word agape. It simply means affection or goodwill. And it's as if Paul anticipates that there will be an objection to this doctrine. And as he does so, he, he tells his readers exactly what it was that motivated God to elect a people, as Peter says, for his own possession. And he did it because he loved you. As I meditated on those two words in verse 4, in love, I asked myself this question, what kind of a love is it? That's all I asked myself. What kind of a love is it? And most of you will know the answer that popped into my mind. It was what kind of love? It was agape love. It was agape love. But then another question popped in my mind and went something like this. What does that agape love look like? And all of a sudden, the, 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 the truth began to flood over my soul to encourage me. And several things surfaced. First, we realized this. What kind of a love is it? It's an eternal love. We've already seen in some, today, some detail this morning and last week as well, how God's love for his people is an eternal love as he sets his affection on them when? In eternity past. Which is a long time ago. But it's not only an eternal love, it is a focused love. If the doctrine of predestination tells us anything, it tells us that God has a focused love for his people. It's not this general love that he just kind of just loves people generally. Rather, it is a, it's a love that says something like this. Dane, I love you. You say, but Dane, can I just mess with you for a minute? It would be like you say, but God, don't you know what I did for years ago don't you know what i think about don't you know what i don't you know me and god says i love you steve but why me actually you know what i I hope this doesn't betray our confidence but steve has actually asked me this question i remember it vividly why would god choose me the reason he would choose steve is I love you. It's that focused. It's not this general love. It's I love Spence. I love Spence with this focused love. Deuteronomy says it like this. 
Deuteronomy 7, 6, and 7. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples on the face of the earth. That is to say, as we learned last week, God chose who in the Old Testament? Israel. He didn't choose the Moabites. He didn't choose the Canaanites. He certainly didn't choose the Babylonians. Who did he choose? He set his affection on Israel, on this dinky little country in the Middle East, on these people. Why did he choose Israel? It was for his pleasure. They became a people for his treasured possession. Out of all the peoples who were on the face of the earth, it was not because you were more in number than any of the other people that the Lord has set his love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all the peoples. And so this is an eternal love. It's a focused love. It's also a sovereign love. Would you look with me at Romans 9? Romans 9, beginning in verse 15. And in Romans 9, we we see this amazing treatise that celebrates the sovereignty of God in salvation. Romans 9, 15, for he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I'll have mercy and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very this very purpose, I have raised you up that I might show my power in you. And that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills and he hardens whomever he wills. This is a sovereign love. It also struck me that this is a conquering love. It is a conquering love. When God demonstrates his love for you, he not only grants divine favor and benevolence. But listen to this. He conquers your unbelief. And I want to encourage you this morning to let that sink in. If if you are a newer Christian, this this one's easy for you to understand because you can remember your unbelief a few months ago, a few years ago. But if you've been a Christian for many years, it might be more difficult to to realize the reality of this conquering love. He conquered every vestige of unbelief, and he continues to conquer every vestige of unbelief, even as a Christian. Number five, it's a proactive love. God's love is a proactive love. Theologians refer to this love as the divine initiative. It's it's an absolutely essential area of theology. It goes something like this. He loved us first. God loved us first. We love, 1 John says, because he first loved us. And the Lord Jesus Christ himself reveals how God's love is proactive. John 15, 16, Jesus says to the disciples, You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide so that whatever you ask in the Father in my name, he also may give to you. There's a sixth way that the love of God is manifested in predestination, and that is triumphantly. It is a triumphant love. Would you turn with me to Isaiah chapter 62? Because this is a verse I I want you to, to gaze at, to 
to encourage you this morning. Isaiah chapter 62, verse 5. While you're turning there, I'll tell you this story. 26 years ago. 26 years and almost two months ago. I stood in a church very similar to Christ Fellowship. And I stood right about here next to a pastor. Who knows where I'm going? I'll give you a hint. It wasn't a baseball game. At my wedding, I stood with five beautiful ladies and five great-looking dudes. Wait, the dudes were over here, weren't they? And then Doreen had the five ladies, and I stood, and I waited. It seemed like it took forever. And then those two doors opened, and I saw my bride. There's a theological word for what I thought on that day. I'll give you the one word. Wow. Man, she was beautiful, and she's even more beautiful today. Going for the points, you see. But as I, as I stood there that day, and the music played, and the people stood, and Jerrine made her way to me. Wow. Do you think I was rejoicing over my bride? Oh, man, what, what a day. I'll never forget it. Now look with me at Isaiah chapter 62 and put yourself in this scenario. For as a young man marries a young woman, are you with me? So shall your sons marry you. And as a bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. I want you to think about predestination. I want you to think about this triumphant love and the God who rejoices over his bride. Predestination is a doctrine that should make us smile. It should cause our our hands to be lifted to the sky. It should cause our knees to hit the ground and say, thank you, like the songwriter said, thank you for saving me. Zephaniah chapter 3 says, The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. This is the God who demonstrates triumphant love to his people. Have you ever felt unwanted? Have you ever felt marginalized? Have you ever felt unlovable? Last night, I did not sleep but a wink. And I think one of the reasons I was having trouble sleeping is because I heard a story about a man who I have a great deal of respect for, who has been accused of wrongdoing and committing several acts of sin. And it grieved me like you would not believe. And in the course of committing these alleged sins, he threatened to kill himself. And it made me wonder, have have you ever been in such a situation where you felt so unloved and so marginalized and so unlovable, so mediocre that you felt like taking your own life? You just 
couldn't understand what your place in the world was. The Bible tells us this. God pursues a people for his own possession. It is a holy pursuit that involves a love that is eternal and focused and sovereign. It is a pursuit that conquers every vestige of unbelief. It is a proactive love that takes the first step. He loved us first. And it is a triumphant love that is filled with godly joy, which is all to your benefit. The Bible speaks about this divine pursuit, not only in eternity past, but this divine pursuit is also revealed just outside the gates of Jerusalem. As the Lord Jesus Christ dies on a wooden cross for the sins of every person who would ever believe. Scripture says that God shows his love for us. And that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And all I want to ask this morning is this. Can you believe it? Can you believe that Jesus died for you? This is the divine pursuit. Look at the third heading with me. And if you would go back to Ephesians chapter 1, verse 5, as we inch our way through the book of Ephesians. We've seen the divine plan. We've seen the divine pursuit. In verse 5, we see the divine purpose. Paul says it like this. He predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. You ask, Pastor, what is the purpose of predestination? Well, we've already seen one important purpose for election, namely, as verse 4 says, to be holy and blameless in his sight. And if that wasn't enough, we see another purpose in verse 5. Verse 5 reveals an additional reason that God predestined his people We see this, that he predestined us to adopt us as his sons and ladies as his daughters. We are his sons and we are his daughters. Before God adopted us, who were we? The Bible says we were his enemies under his almighty wrath, separated from him without hope and without God. And so the heart of God is for the orphan. And of course, each one of us were orphans before we were given grace and adopted into the family of God. Why did he do it? He did it because he loved us. That word adoption means this. It means to be placed in a position and rights as one's own child. It means sonship. Wayne Grudem says adoption is an act of God whereby he makes us members of his family. That's about the most simple, clear, concise definition I've ever read concerning the reality of adoption. We become members of his family. Now, if that isn't enough, there are some special privileges associated with becoming adopted in God's family. Let me give you several of them. First, adopted sons and daughters daughters may approach God as father. How do we begin our prayers? Jesus told the disciples, guys, this is how you pray. What did he say? Our father who art in heaven. Think about that. We take it for granted. We just came off the Thanksgiving holidays. And my suspicion is that you all gathered around a table and had a 
a big spread of food. And someone was asked to say a prayer. And the prayer went something like this. Father in heaven, thank you. Father in heaven, we're so grateful to be here. Father in heaven, thank you for the food you provided. But there's something interesting about that prayer is we sometimes take it for granted that we can call the king of the universe. Father, he's our father. This is a privilege of adoption. There's another privilege, and that is that adopted sons and daughters are co-heirs with Christ. Paul says in Galatians 4, 7, so you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir, that's H-E-I-R, through God. Romans 8, 16, Paul says the spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. That leads to the third privilege that adopted sons and daughters have the share, have their share in Christ's suffering as well as his glory. Romans eight seventeen, Paul continues. And if children, then heirs. Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may be glorified with him. Finally, adopted sons and daughters are the recipients of God's particular saving love. I know you're familiar with 1 John chapter 3, where John the Apostle says, See what kind of love the Father has given us. I believe the NIV uses the word lavished on us, which I like a great deal, that we should be called children of God. And so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Before we move to the final heading, notice four important clarifications about our adoption. I'll give them to you quickly. Apart from predestination, think about this. Apart from predestination, no adoption. Apart from predestination, not a one of us would have been adopted. Remember also that our adoption is only possible because of God the Father. And our adoption is through the Lord Jesus Christ. And we'll learn the role of the Spirit in verses 13 and 14. And our adoption is according to the purpose of God, Paul says. And here's a... A message in and of itself, but I'll just give you one sentence. Our adoption is both a present reality and a future reality. Theologians say it's already and not yet. We have not been given our full right as sons. That will come when we're glorified in heaven. Paul says in Romans eight twenty three, and not only the creation, but we ourselves, we have the first fruits of the spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. Is anyone excited? Whew. There's a fourth heading and I'll be brief. The fourth heading is simply divine praise, divine praise. Look at verse six. We've seen how God predestines us for adoption through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. Verse 6, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. What is the aim of our existence? 
What is our place in this world? Isaiah chapter 43, verse 7, provides a short yet a clear answer to that question. Everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory. The aim of our existence is the glory of God. B.B. Warfield, the great Princetonian theologian, said, In the infinite wisdom of the Lord of all the earth, each event falls with the exact precision into its proper place in the unfolding of his eternal plan. That much we have learned. But Warfield continues, Nothing, however small, however strange, occurs without his ordering or without its peculiar fitness for its place in the working out of his purposes. And the end of all shall be the manifestation of his glory and the accumulation of his praise. Don't you love those last lines? The manifestation of his glory, the accumulation of his praise. My friends, we have seen this morning the divine plan. We have familiarized ourselves with the divine pursuit. We have witnessed the divine purpose and we have considered the reality of the divine praise. And all of these realities help us to understand the point of predestination, which is ultimately according to the purpose of his will and to the praise of his glorious grace. Here's the bottom line reality. The point of predestination is that God should be praised and receive all the glory. The Westminster Confession of Faith sums up this triumphant truth. It says, God, the great creator of all things, doth uphold, direct, dispose, and govern all creatures, actions, and things from the greatest even to the least by his most wise and holy providence according to his infallible foreknowledge and the free immutable counsel of his own will to the praise and glory of his wisdom, power, justice, goodness, and mercy. I close with this challenge. When you struggle with your purpose in life, remember this. God, if you are in Christ, has predestined you. When you feel marginalized, remember this reality. God, if you are in Christ, has predestined you. When you struggle with assurance of salvation, which I have found most believers do, most believers do, remember that God predestined you. And when you battle with temptation, which I have discovered every believer does. When you battle with temptation and you wonder if you will ever walk in victory, remember Philippians 1, 6 that says, I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Remember, God predestined you. May we at Christ Fellowship Stand in awe before our great God and King who ordains everything that comes to pass. And may our lives be a reflection of his plan that he is predestined in ages past so that he would receive the exclusive praise, honor, and glory that is due only to him and him alone. Let's pray.
Father, I can only think of the words to the song that says, Amazing love, how can it be that Christ would die for me? Why would you choose a sinner like me? A God, I thinking personally about this doctrine that we have gone to great lengths to learn about, to wrestle with. I remember the days, and it doesn't seem like it was too many years ago, when I wrestled and fought and kicked and scratched and argued with my friends, trying to cite proof text after proof text, but missing all along the forest for the trees. And so, God, I I pray that, that you would bring great understanding to our congregation. I pray that wherever we are in the Christian life, that you would help us to, to understand the reality of predestination. Help us to see the point of predestination, that at the end of the day, it is for your glory, for the accumulation of your praise. God, for any who are struggling, whether it's with this doctrine or whether it's with the Christian life or with temptation or battling anxiety or battling depression or battling thoughts of suicide or struggling with parenting or wrestling with schoolwork or wrestling with friendships. God, may you bring hope to someone's life today. May you show them how much you love them, that your love is a a focused love that finds its origin in eternity past. Thank you for loving sinners like us. Thank you for setting your affection on this, your people. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.